you pray with me? It is true, uh, Jesus, we do turn our eyes to you. Father, we need you. In this time in your word, we know that the flesh is no help at all. It's the spirit who gives life. And so I pray that you would give life to us this morning through your word. Lord, sometimes we encounter passages of scripture that are painful. And I pray that we would be pierced appropriately and also reminded of the healing that is ours through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Gary was the model of a faithful husband. He worked hard to provide for his family. He loved his wife and children. He served them selflessly. You never heard him complain, and he always seemed to be looking for ways to show his love and affection. The same could not be said for his wife, Rhonda, though. She would make her appearances at dinner time and the occasional school event, but for the most part, she was always gone. And worse than that, everyone knew where she was when she was gone. She was spending time with lots of other men who were not her husband. She was showing love to them. She was taking Gary's paychecks and spending them on herself and on these other adventures. And Gary knew it. For years, Gary gently pleaded with her to stop. He told her that he loved her. He told her that he would forgive her but she would not listen. One day, Rhonda came home to eat her obligatory dinner with Gary and the kids. And after sending the kids out of the room, Gary told Rhonda that he was done. He was done with her wandering. He was done with her lack of love. He had been patient with her. He had pleaded with her. He had loved her while she disgraced his name all over town. And he could bear it no more. He laid out all the reasons, all the instances of her unfaithfulness. Her response, don't I eat dinner with you every night? What more do you want from me? She was blind to her wickedness and indifferent to the disgrace that she brought upon her family. Such is the state in which we find Israel in the book of Hosea. Last week we looked at chapters 1 through 3. Uh, Hosea's brutal call uh, to marry a wife of unfaithfulness is a living picture of the relationship between the Lord and His people Israel. Israel had been repeatedly and horrifically unfaithful to their covenant with the Lord. They had broken their vows. I mentioned last week uh, that in some ways that passage encapsulated the whole message of the book of Hosea. And this week's passage, a large passage, it zeroes in on Israel's unfaithfulness. 
Much like the story I just told, the Lord is announcing that He will no longer tolerate the wickedness of His people. His patience has ended. So this morning we're going to look at chapters 4 through the middle of chapter 9. I'm not going to read all of it, but I am going to read a good portion of it. We're going to look at those chapters and we're going to focus on the Lord's charges against Israel... His promised judgment. And then we're going to end with a question. What is it that the Lord's looking for from these people? What does He want from them and from us? This passage is very gloomy. It's very heavy. You know why? Because sin is wicked. All sin is wicked. And those who make small compromises with sin can end up in terrible places. Those who forget the Lord are liable to judgment. He has been a faithful husband and His people have been faithless. I pray that our hearts are softened to receive His word today. I'm going to read chapter 4, 5, and the beginning of chapter 6. If you have, there are Bibles in front of you. If you want to use one of those Bibles, it's on page 752. As I've mentioned last week and in my Hosea primer that I sent out, there is some strong language in the book of Hosea. The Lord has accusations against His people that they have been maritally unfaithful to Him. They've broken their marriage vows. Hosea 4.1, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed, therefore the land mourns. And all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let, no one, or let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people like priests. I will punish them for their ways. And repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. 
Therefore your daughters play the whore and brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they, go see, they shall go seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and none No one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck down and He will bind us up. After two days He will revive us. On the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. 
and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is the word of the Lord. Imagine a person is going through divorce proceedings with their spouse and the judge asked upon what grounds this person was claiming marital unfaithfulness and if at that moment the aggrieved spouse pulled out a list that was miles long of all the ways that their spouse had been unfaithful, all the times that their spouse had been unfaithful to them, the judge would have very little choice but to agree with this person. And here in these chapters, the Lord presents an airtight case against Israel. What was it that brought him to this point with these people? That was a tough passage. If we read the rest of it, it's a tough passage. What brought him to this point? I was compelled as I studied it. I think it's worth just listing from chapter 4 through the middle of chapter 9. Just the things that the Lord accuses his people of. And when I say accuses, I'm hesitant to use the word accuses because accuses implies that they might not have done it. He's charged, they did it. He's telling them. It's not an accusation. So let's just listen to these. For one, there is no faithfulness. They are an unfaithful people. For one, no steadfast love. For one, no knowledge of God. For two, these people love sin and rebellion of all kinds. You can follow along in your Bibles if you want to. You don't have to. Five, four, the Lord says, their deeds do not permit them to return to the Lord. Five, four, there is an adulterous spirit within them. 5, 5, and 7, 10, the Lord says the, their pride testifies to their face. 5, 7, and 6, 7, they have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. 5, 10, they are deceivers. 5, 11, they're determined to go after filth. 7, 4, says they're adulterers. 6, 9, he says they're murderers. 7, 3, they love evil. 7, 4 through 7, they have hearts like an oven, stoked and burning for sin. He says that multiple times, that they have hearts like an oven, just looking to feed itself on sin. 7, 10, and 11, they do not seek the Lord. They are without sense. They run to other helpers before they go to the Lord. We even read that in this passage, right? In 5.13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went where? Did they go to the Lord and say, please help us? No, they went to Assyria, another nation. Maybe you can get us out of this. If you know the history of the nation of Israel, they tried to get help from other nations, even when God said, you know who could help you? you know who would be a really good helper right now? Me. And they said, nah, we're going to try some other things. We're going to try Egypt. We're going to try Assyria. Bad plan. But we do that too, right? The Lord says, come to me, right? 
When you are, when you are in times of trouble, when you have need, when you, we, go, we go everywhere else but him often. This was an accusation he made against his people. They had strayed from the Lord, 713, spoken lies against him. They had lied about God. 714, they did not cry to him from the heart. They had a grief that was worldly. They were sad because situations weren't what they wanted them to be. But it was not a heart grief that they had offended the Lord. They devise evil against God, he says in 7.15. 7.16, they sin with their tongues. 8.1, they rebelled against God's law. They had transgressed their covenant. 8.3, they had spurned the good. 8.5, they are incapable of innocence. 8.9, they hired other lovers. 8.11, they multiplied altars for sinning. 8.12, we can look, let's look at 8.12. I think this is a very important verse for our understanding of how a person becomes right with the Lord or makes themselves presentable before the Lord. The Lord says in 8.12, Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. He's saying... I could have put up a hundred fences, a million fences, 10,000 fences with words of don't do this, do this, don't do this. And what would it have profited their evil, wicked hearts? Would, it have made, would they have been able to make themselves righteous if he gave them more laws? No. They would just become more guilty. More things to be guilty of. 8.14, he says, they forgot the Lord. We talked about this last week. Forgot the Lord. 9.1, they had forsaken God. Just 4.1 through 9.9 is a sobering list of accusations, of charges. I counted at least 27. Just in these chapters. And that doesn't count the names of the places. A good study for you to do. If you're looking like, I want to read these chapters later. Look at the names of the places in these chapters and ask yourself, why does God include these names? All the names of the places testify against Israel. These were places where they were offering awful, horrific sacrifices to foreign gods. So he mentions, we'll just give you one example. He mentions this place called Beth Avon. In 4.15 and 5.8. Do you know what that name means? Maybe your footnotes tell you. Oh, mine don't tell me. Beth-Avon means the house of evil. And it's a play on words. Because the people of Israel were very familiar with a place called Bethel, right? Which means what? The house of God. These were a people who had turned the house of God into a house of evil. They have in every way made a mockery of God's name, dishonored Him, disgraced themselves. They loved the ways and the gods of the nations around them. They enjoyed their lives of luxury and prosperity, and they forgot the Lord. They invented 
evil. They boasted in evil. In a month that, that right now, we're, we're in a month that's devoted to the word pride. Sorry, could you say that again? I could. Uh, my wife claims she has put this thing on do not disturb. If I knew how, I would. In a month that is devoted to pride, right? That's, that's the boasting point of this month, pride. Pride in this passage stands as a monument to mankind's rejection of God as king. Boasting in what ought to be our shame is a disgrace. Especially when the church does it. I just want to make a side note here. In Pride Month, there is absolutely 100% a way to love someone and 100% disagree with the life that they're living. That is possible. We live in a world that tells us that that's not possible. I, I thought of our, of our young people especially. It is okay to say that you disagree with the way a person chooses to live their life. And that we believe that the Lord says it's not right. And still love those people dearly and deeply. That's very possible. Social media will tell you that's not possible. Social media will tell you, if you say anything against me, you hate me. That's not true. We are to be kind people. I prayed for this. We are to be kind in all our relationships. That doesn't mean we have to sacrifice what is true. That does not mean that we have to endorse what God says is not okay. Pride is bringing the nation of Israel down. A couple items I think are especially of note here as we talk about these charges that God makes. Number one, we see in chapter four that the Lord directs his anger. Where does he go first? Where does he go right out of the gate in chapter four? Who's he looking for first? The and among the sons of Israel, who's, who among them? The priests. The priests had rejected knowledge. They had forgotten the law of God. They had indulged themselves and they were greedy for their own iniquity. And so it shall be like people like priests, right? You could take that either way. As the people go, so go the priests, that they're like, well, we just want to do whatever everybody else says is good to make them happy so that we can keep our positions of power. Or it could be that they're saying, uh, that, that the Lord is saying, because the priests are like this, the people are like this. It's a word of warning to all in spiritual leadership. The finger pointing starts right here. If we sacrifice the knowledge of God, if we sacrifice the truth of God, the word of God, the gospel of God, if we do that in the name of success or prosperity or wanting to be praised or keeping our positions of power, we are going to harm the flock. Remove us. Us. I'm, I, I include me in the us. 
Jesus would later tell the Pharisees that they went over land and sea to win a single convert. And when they did, they turned him into twice as much a son of hell as they themselves were. Leaders who do not represent God faithfully, who do not put forward the knowledge of God, are dangerous. When knowledge and truth are hidden, they will soon be forgotten. And then, later, they will be despised. That's where we are in Israel. They hate the truth. They forgot it, and then they despised it because they wanted to be like everybody else. And their leaders didn't step up and stand in the gap and say, no, we will not depart from the law of the Lord. We will not turn one way or the other. God contends with the leaders. He contends with the men in 4.14. He says, I'm not going to blame your daughters. I'm not going to go to them. They're acting like you. He contends with the leaders in 4.18, the kings. Your nation is a perfect reflection of all its leaders. It's kings, it's priests, and it's men. You look just like what you ought to look like based on their leadership. The nation was polluted from the top down. Please, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Pray for church leaders. Pray for leaders in the homes. We need God's grace. We are so fallible. We are so needy. Pray for leaders who hold the line, who love the body, who hold forth the truth and lay down our lives for the good of those within. The second thing that we absolutely need to see in these charges that God makes is that the problem with the people of Israel, is it an external problem first and foremost? Like you're doing bad things, stop doing bad things. Is that the problem? What's the problem? They've got bad hearts. They have a heart problem. Sure, there were external manifestations of these heart problems. But they did what they did because of what was in their hearts. How many of the charges went after uh, what they did or did not do from the heart? They were incapable of innocence, God says. Incapable of loving God. The problem was the heart. And this nation wanted to deal with whatever problem they had with empty religious efforts. 6-6, Jeff prayed well for us this morning. 6-6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. 8-13, the Lord says, as for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. 9-4, he says, They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please Him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. Hey, Lord, look. I know. Everything about our lives says that we don't care about you at all. But hey, Lord, we killed some animals for you. Right? Come on. What's the big deal? Hey, Lord, we poured out our drink offerings for you. 
aren't you impressed with us? His answer is a resounding no. He is not impressed. As a matter of fact, he says, stop it. I don't want your sacrifices. They do nothing except make me angrier at your sin. As if by doing this, this little act here, this little thing that I pledge to do to the Lord, that he's just going to say like, oh, then I don't care that your heart is desperately wicked, that you're worshiping other gods, that you don't care about me at all, that you have no love in your heart for me. Since you killed that animal, it's fine. The person who thinks they can atone for their rebellion against God by performing a religious act is sorely mistaken. And it's really important for you to hear that. If you're here this morning and you're saying, maybe you're saying, I am a Christian and I am because of the things I do, you are not a Christian. Or if you're saying, like, I, I got to, I think Jeff nailed it in his prayer. He pray, prayed that sometimes we say, like, all right, I had a bad day. I had a bad week. I got to make a list of a few things I should do to make it up to the Lord. That is not primarily what the Lord wants from us. Do you understand the wickedness and wretchedness of sin? How vile it is that people would exchange the glory of God to live in fleshly pursuits. And then while still happily living this way, they throw up some sacrifices to cover their bases. That is an abomination. If you think that some form of religious behavior or ceremony will wipe you clean from a heart of rebellion against God, you are wrong. The heart of our sin is rejection of our Maker, our Heavenly Father. There is no external fix that we can provide. It is a heart problem. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you understand that it is not by your religious activity that the Lord looks on you with favor? Do you know that? Thank goodness is right. That no religious activity can become the ground of your boasting before God. The source of your righteousness before God. He, he does not look upon you and say, I'm not sure how I feel about you today. How have you done today? The source of our righteousness before God is that righteousness that Jeff read about from Romans chapter 3. And we're going to talk about what we do in response to that in a few minutes. But we need to get, get it right. Our religious activities do not add to God's pleasure with us. He is pleased when we do, when we do good things. But he can be no more pleased with us than he is when he looks at us and sees the perfections of his son. This was a people whose hearts were desperately wicked. And because of that, the Lord stood ready to judge them. Now, I'm going to say two things right now. I just finished point one. But, but I promise you, points two and three are not as long as point one. Point one was, that, that was the, the weight of this passage, is what the Lord has against his people. And then he promises judgment multiple times in this section. 4-1 5.1, the Lord instructs Israel to hear what he has to say. He says that he has hewn them by the prophets. Did you hear that in 6.5 when we read that? He's hewn them by the prophets, slain them 
by the word of his mouth, and that his judgment goes forth as the light. His word has condemned them, brought them under condemnation. He told them to blow trumpets and sound horns, announce that judgment was here. And again, in this passage, just as with the charges against Israel, here the Lord lays out many threats of punishment that his people are about to face. I'll quickly read through them. Four or five. Priests and prophets will stumble by day and night. Their mother will be destroyed. Four, six. The priests are rejected. Their children forgotten. Four, seven. Their glory will be turned to shame. Four, ten. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They'll lack fruitfulness in spite of their promiscuous behavior. Four, fourteen. They'll come to ruin. Five, five. They'll be ashamed and stumble. Judah included in the stumbling. Five, six will not find the Lord because he has withdrawn from them. Five, seven, the new moon, their festivals, they're going to devour them. They're going to be devoured by their own religious observances. Five, nine, and ten, they shall become a desolation. God's wrath poured out like water. They'll be oppressed and crushed in judgment, he says in 5.11. 5.14, God says he'll be like a lion to them, tearing and carrying away. 7.12, God will spread his net over them, bringing them down and disciplining them. 7.13, woe and destruction are promised. 7.16, your princes shall fall by the sword. 8.3, the enemy shall pursue them. 8.6, their idols shall be shattered. 8.7, they're going to reap the whirlwind. 8.13 and 9.9, God will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. He says the exact same phrase twice. And that's going to be very important in a few minutes. He will remember their iniquity. And he will punish their sins. 8.14. There will be fire upon their cities. And they will devour their strongholds. 9.2. There will be no produce. No wine. 9.3. They will return to Egypt. And eat unclean food in Assyria. 9.4. They are going to give unacceptable sacrifices. And 9.6. They run away into pain. What are we to learn here? Sin is a heart problem and sin has consequences. The Lord had been extremely patient with Israel. He had warned them. He had rebuked them. He had forgiven them. Repeat the cycle. Warning, rebuke, forgiveness. Over and over and over and over. Sin must be dealt with. Sin is a violation of God, or a violation of God's commands is not a small thing. The God of the universe has every right to demand of us whatever he wants. He has every right. The people of his own choosing had rejected his ways and disgraced his name, and he tells them now it's time to face the music. And it would not be long in the grand scheme of things, just one generation later, before everything they trusted fell apart. In 8.14, he says, Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. I was so, as I, as I studied this passage this week, I had in my mind so, so many times the Tower of Babel. 
this idea that people are going to, to, do, to build a monument to their greatness and to say, we don't really need God. And we dare God to come after us because we're stronger. And here Judah had trusted in and Israel had trusted in everything except the one in whom they should have trusted. They trusted in other nations. They built their palaces. They built their strongholds. And you know what? Next generation... When God says, uh, I will send a fire upon his cities, Judah had apparently 46 strongholds built. Areas where they could defend themselves, nobody could do it. Nobody could get to them. 50 years later, 45 of those strongholds would be gone. Burned by Sennacherib, Sennacherib of Assyria. Only one remained. Do you know what one remained? Jerusalem. That would be the only one that stood. Judah trusted, Israel trusted in its fortified cities, and the Lord would remove them. Israel and Judah would both face destruction for their sin. It's still the same for those who refuse the daily gracious plea of God to trust in Him. For those who say, no, no thank you. I'd rather have what I've got. I'd rather build my kingdom. I don't need you. I would rather live however I feel like. I don't need you. I don't need you interfering in my life. I don't need you telling me that the way I'm living is not pleasing to you. I don't want that. The Lord, he let you live again today. And he says, trust in me. Come to me. Again, he says it. You get another chance. Maybe there are some in this room right now who live as complete hypocrites. I'm not talking about people who still find sin in themselves and desire to be cleansed from it once and for all and long to please the Lord with all of our lives. That's a lifelong project. But there may be some sitting in this room right now who live an entirely different existence when they think no one is looking. Be reminded this morning, friend, the Lord sees, the Lord knows, and He will repay. And He has given you the opportunity. Again, you're here this morning. You get to hear this. And you can say, yes, it's, it ends today. He is merciful to extend this offer and say even today hypocrite come clean and find mercy in Christ so point three here what does the Lord want what does he want from the people of Israel and what does he want from us what are we to do? These are, these are hard accusations, and the judgment to come is a brutal one. What does the Lord want from His people? I mean, He's told you, we read it earlier in the service, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. They're not doing that. Here in this passage today, we hear more of what the Lord wants. A few things that He says. 4.1. What does He want? He wants the opposite of what they had. Faithfulness, steadfast love, 
knowledge of Him. 5.15, He wants them, He says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. He wants steadfast love and knowledge of Him as opposed to meaningless sacrifices and burnt offerings. He says that in 6.6 and 8.13. In 7.14-16. I'll read those. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword. He wants heart repentance. He wants them to return to Him. 8.1 He wants them to be saddened. Is it? I don't think that's right. 8.1 Well, I must have wrote the wrong verse down. But He wants sadness over sin. Just as Israel's problem, both corporately and individually, was a heart problem, the Lord desired a heart solution. You can't fix your external behaviors, Israel, and think that everything's going to be okay. I want love from the heart. I want repentance from the heart. I want obedience from the heart. Now, let's just say I say that to you. I just did say it to you. What is maybe the first reaction to that? Okay, overwhelmed. I want obedience from the heart, love from the heart, and uh, actions that, that, that flow from the heart. You can say what's on your mind. Yeah, maybe overwhelmed, like, oh, wow, that's, that's a lot to try to do. I can't do that. Dare I say, stay with me here, dare I say right now that God is commanding the impossible? Is it blasphemous to say that God is commanding the impossible here? I don't think so. Because here in this passage and so many other places in Scripture, He is trying to make them despair of themselves and look to Him. He's trying to say, what I want, you're not... Think about Cain and Abel, right? Cain and Abel. Cain is angry. He's living this life, and the Lord says to him, you better rule over your sin, or it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy you. It's crouching at your door. What would have been a good reaction from Cain? Help. Lord, I can't, I want to kill him. Help. And he's commanding the people of Israel. He's saying, I want your hearts. I don't just want your actions. And if they would turn to him and say, Lord, we can't do that. We need you to help us do that. What would his response be? Lord, you're commanding something that I cannot produce. Yes, indeed. But what if you came to me for mercy and grace to help in time of need? Lord, you say you're going to remember our iniquity and punish our sins. What ought we do? 
In the book of the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord says, listen to this. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, where? Within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will, do you know what he says then? For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. What was the accusation that he had against them? That their iniquity, or what he was going to do, he was going to remember their iniquity and punish their sins. And the new covenant promise is that he will forgive our iniquity and remember our sins no more. Lord, we see that we have, you have distressed us because of our sin. How might we return if we acknowledge our guilt? Where do we go from here? People of God, Friends who are not believers in Christ who have joined us today, be encouraged. It even says in this passage, after two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we might live before Him. There is hope of a reviving. Even in the midst of this heavy, heavy passage, there's hope of a reviving, hope of a raising up that will allow us, the faithful of God, to live before the Lord. Our heart problems find their solution in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the third day, he was raised. That's from Hosea. I was quoting Hosea. Third day. Third day, he was raised that we might have the hope of eternal life. Ephesians 2, passage maybe many of us are very familiar with. Ephesians 2, I'm going to read verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All who trust in Christ will be forgiven, will be made alive with Christ, will be given the hope that comes from new hearts, transplanted hearts. He's doing it. He's doing all of it. We sung it earlier. I need clean hands. I can't. You can. These people who stood under condemnation, and we are those people too. He has forgiven our sins and cleansed us from all unrighteousness through Jesus Christ. Israel's sacrifices would not be sufficient, but of Jesus we learn in the book of Hebrews, as I start to land the plane. Israel's sacrifices weren't sufficient. But, the writer of Hebrews says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, 
Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. His sacrifice? Totally acceptable before the Lord. The sacrifice of Jesus counts on behalf of all who trust in Him. The hope of Israel is ultimately the hope of Joy Community Fellowship. Through just tribulation, deserved tribulation due to their sins, the hope was that they would seek what the Lord alone could provide. And He provided it for them and for us through the sacrifice of Jesus. Though our hearts have gone astray, Jesus is our only hope. Israel's repentant unsin- or in unrepentant sinfulness over many generations had brought about God's promised judgment. But even as we learned last week, His judgment would be a means of wooing them to return to Him. He exposes our sin so that we might ultimately despair of ourselves, realize that we do not have the strength to do what is needed, and turn to Him. Our sins and iniquities are piled so high. Our hearts are so wicked apart from grace. But it is a great glory that our just God does this so that we might look to Him and find hope and peace. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the lesson we learn from this passage is that Jesus is the rock-solid base of our hope. We do justice, we love kindness, we walk humbly with our God as an act of worship. But our shelter from the wrath of God is not the sacrifices we make. It is the perfect sacrifice and victorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ that keeps us safe. That cleanses us. That changes us. Hope in Him today because He's going to keep us safe. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that though our sins were as scarlet, you washed us white as snow. We deserve nothing but your judgment. And yet, Father, you have extended great mercy to us, great hope to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we are no better sinners than anybody else. All of us are equal in our rebellion and our need. Father, may it be that we continue to seek the grace that only you can provide. Rest in the salvation that comes from you. And then, Father, as acts of worship by your Spirit's empowering, live in a way that pleases you, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, not to merit your favor, but because we are favored and forgiven through Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.